1: Discord sees a third-party data breach. Black Basta conducts a ransomware attack against technology company ABB. Intrusion Truth returns to Docs APT-41. Anonymous Sudan looks like a Russian front operation. Attribution and motivation of Red Stinger remains murky. CISA summarizes Russian cyber offenses. Remote code execution exploits ruckus in the wild. Our guest is Dave Russell from Veeam with insights on data protection. Matt O'Neill from the U.S. Secret Service on their efforts to thwart email compromise and romance scams. And espionage by way of comments on YouTube. Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire Intel briefing for Monday, May 15th, 2023. Bleeping Computer reports that Discord, the well known voice over IP and instant messaging social platform, has experienced a data breach through the compromised account of a third-party support agent. Discord says the exposed ticket queue of the support agent contained user email addresses, messages exchanged with Discord support, and any attachments sent as part of the tickets. The company quickly disabled the agent's account and did a malware sweep of the device. Security Affairs reports that Discord is also working with its third-party support provider to improve their cybersecurity posture and prevent an incident like this from taking place again. Discord told affected users that they believe the risk from the breach is minimal, but that they advise vigilance against potential fraud or phishing attempts. Swiss technology company ABB confirmed Friday that they are experiencing technical issues relating to a cyber attack. Bleeping Computer reports that the Black Basta ransomware gang was behind the attack, but ABB has yet to confirm this. The outlet reports that employees have noted that the attack has impacted the company's Windows Active Directory, affecting hundreds of devices. ABB seems to remain mostly operational. An ABB spokesperson told at CISO, The vast majority of its systems and factories are up and running, and ABB continues to serve its customers in a secure manner. The Washington Post reports that Intrusion Truth, the anonymous bloggers who've made a specialty of exposing Chinese Ministry of State Security cyber operations resurfaced last week to publish an account of APT 41's recent activities. In this case, it's a claimed expose of the MSS's Kiru Cracking Academy located in Wuhan. Mandiant describes APT 41 as a China Nexus cyber espionage actor. Focused on obtaining information that can provide the Chinese government and state-owned enterprises with political, economic, and military advantages. It's less clear who intrusion truth is. The group presents itself as a collection of hacktivists, but there's speculation that in fact they're a cybersecurity firm or an activity run by a Western intelligence service. In any case, their reports have a good track record of confirmation by independent sources. Bloomberg reports that Anonymous Sudan, which represents itself as an Islamist Sudanese hacktivist collective, appears, in fact, to be a false flag operation of Russian intelligence services. Research published in February by the Swedish cybersecurity firm Trusek concludes that Anonymous Sudan is instead, in all probability, a Russian operation directed at Sweden. Its aim is to interfere with Sweden's accession to NATO using a mix of nuisance-level DDoS attacks and influence operations directed at Sweden's Muslim minority and at Turkish public opinion. The DDoS attacks, apart from the irritation they represent, lends some plausibility to Anonymous Sudan's self-presentation as a hacktivist group. DDoS, after all, is, along with website defacements, a common hacktivist tactic. But Trusek concludes that Anonymous Sudan displays both a detailed close knowledge of Sweden's political climate and a level of funding that far exceeds what's reasonably available to genuine hacktivist groups. The hacktivists, however committed they may be, and however good their day jobs are, usually aren't able to afford pricey server rentals. Bloomberg cites a professor of international relations at the Norwegian Institute for Defense Studies in Oslo, who's seen the timing and organization of the attacks, the hacker's knowledge of religious and political friction points in Sweden, and the attacks' similarities to other Russian influence operations, which led her to the conclusion that there was a Russian intelligence affiliation. For its own part, Anonymous Sudan insists they're not Russian, they say, but Russian has helped them in the past, and this is just their way of giving back. A look at the sad ongoing violence in Sudan would suggest that this is implausible. Actual hacktivists, especially actual Sudanese Islamist hacktivists, would have more immediate concerns than doing their Russian buddies a solid. The Red Stinger campaign Malwarebytes described last week seems to have been active against both Ukrainian and Russian targets. A discussion in CyberNews notes that while the APT group which the outlet refers to as Red Steeler, is known to have been active between 2020 and 2022 and seems to be Russian, its motivation is curious as it's collected against targets on both sides of Russia's war with Ukraine. One possible explanation is that Red Stinger was interested in quasi-domestic surveillance of officials in Ukrainian provinces illegally annexed by Russia. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has published a collection of its studies of the Russian government's malicious cyber activities. The most recent entry is last week's discussion of the snake malware and its disruption by the Five Eyes. The oldest entry goes back to December 29, 2016 and covers the Grizzly step operation conducted against U.S. targets associated with the 2016 U.S. elections. It's noteworthy that CISA's compendium addresses only Russian government malicious activity. The large and active Russian cyber underworld is outside the scope of the summary. CISA logged seven new issues into its known exploited vulnerabilities catalog on Friday. One of the more noteworthy vulnerabilities they added was the critical remote code execution issue affecting multiple Ruckus products. Bleeping Computer reports that the flaw concerns devices using the Ruckus Wireless Admin Panel. The vulnerability, while first acknowledged in February, has probably not seen many patches on vulnerable Wi-Fi access points, which in these attacks have been targeted by Andoriu bot malware. The malware, once within the system, adds the compromised device to a botnet for use in DDoS attacks. Ruckus released a security bulletin in February that was updated last week, detailing the almost 60 devices impacted and the patches that are available. Many end-of-life devices, however, have no patch available. And finally, Dead Drops used to use things like trash bags beneath North Virginia footbridges, maybe signaled with a chalk mark on a mailbox or some chewing gum on a lamppost. Now they can use comments in YouTube videos the Suwon District Prosecutor's Office has charged four members of the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions with spying for North Korea. The South Korean trade unionists are accused, according to NK News, of communicating with their handlers by leaving a prearranged comment in a YouTube tutorial video. The KCTU members are accused of violating the Republic of Korea's National Security Act through both espionage and serving as agents of influence. The alleged influence is incitement of anti-Japanese and anti-American sentiment. Interestingly, not all of the signaling was digital. The four accused also allegedly used old-school tradecraft that would be familiar to any reader of spy novels from jean Le Carré. Coming up after the break, our guest Dave Russell from Veeam with insights on data protection. Matt O'Neill from the U.S. Secret Service explains their efforts to thwart email compromise and romance scams. Stay with us. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Veeam Software is a data backup and protection company, and they recently released the results of their 2023 Data Protection Trends Report. For insights on the report, I spoke with Dave Russell, Vice President of Enterprise Strategy at Veeam.
2: You know, I always like a little bit of myth busting. So, you know, one myth is that um, the cloud and cloud first or hybrid cloud, multi-cloud is coming. But our research shows that it's already here, meaning the in the pandemic years, these last roughly three years, it's a pretty even split on-prem and off, meaning Right now, 4,200 organizations that we surveyed across 28 countries, they report that actually they're slightly more physical than virtual on-prem, and that totals 53% of their workloads. And in the hybrid cloud, multi-cloud universe, meaning off-prem, they're 47%. So nearly half and going to 52% or just over half next year.
1: What do you make of that? I mean, what are the real-world ramifications of of those numbers?
2: To me, it's an interesting mix of, oh, wow, we didn't turn anything off. We still have a lot of physical servers. We obviously have a lot of virtual servers. We're commissioning more, actually more of both, meaning commissioning physical servers on-prem as well. But we're also expanding out into the cloud. And when we say a word like cloud, It actually means many, many different things. It could mean infrastructure as a service. Most of us have multiple software as a service applications that we're running, uh, maybe PaaS applications as well. So if you're an administrator trying to get your arms around that, or if you're a C-level person, a CIO, or a chief uh, information security officer, you've got an awful lot to contend with.
1: Let's dig into some of the other things the report covers here. You touch on... Uh, data protection and disaster recovery, what, what sort of things are you tracking there?
2: Yeah, well, you know, selfishly being uh, a, a data protection vendor, we're, we really want to know what the market's feeling and thinking, you know, both in terms of what do they seek and but also what do what would drive them to change. And the reality is there's a lot of frustration. And I should mention, you know, this is a blind survey, meaning no one knew that Veeam was asking the questions And it's certainly not just Veeam customers. In fact, Veeam makes up fewer than 8% of those 4,200 respondents. And that's by design. So, one of the things that really um, struck me or shook me, I guess I should say, is that organizations self report. The administrators say that they think they have a protection gap in terms of how much data they would lose in a recovery scenario. And a gap in terms of how long it would take them to get the data back. And in fact, those numbers are 79% not going to hit my data loss objectives, meaning I'm going to lose more data. And 80%, I don't think I can get the data back in time in which the business expects it to be. So if the administrators, those that are actually in charge of the systems are, are reporting, hey, I don't think we can do this, that's a, a pretty unnerving set of statistics.
1: And what is the impediment here? I mean, what's keeping them all from closing that gap?
2: Yeah, in part, it's what we mentioned around the, the different types of deployments. But the other thing that really was interesting to me is we've been asking now for the last three years, what was the the number one and please rank all causes of unplanned outages And what's amazing is all of the things that literally for half a century we've worried about in the data center, like server outages, network misconfiguration, et cetera, those things still happen with amazing frequency, you know, despite the rise of, you know, redundant power supplies and high mean time to failure components, we still have those things happening. But what rose to the top the last two years has been cybersecurity. So now you've got to worry about all kinds of configuration issues and component failures as well as cyber. And when we added all that up, it actually, if they can check all, it it adds up to 500%. So that means on average, there are five different things taking down a server in a 24-month period.
1: What is your sense in terms of... of the folks who are responsible for protecting these systems being able to tell that story and get the resources they need to the the powers that be at their organizations?
2: In a strange way, I think that story or situation is getting better. And what I mean by that is, I you know, now I'm going on 34 years I've been in the backup space. I always felt like organizations were not nearly as, as recoverable as they thought they were. And yet the data that You know, I just rattled off shows, a protection gap, a recovery gap in terms of time. But it was easy to kind of kick the can down the road, meaning we'll get to that later. And the reason why was because we historically as an industry, we only recovered or restored three to 5% of the data that we backed up. And the trick, of course, was you didn't know which three to 5% and you didn't know when you would need it. Now comes cyber, where literally, without warning, 100% of your production data could have to be recovered. And then within a period of a couple months, you might get hit again. In fact, unfortunately, the odds are are not in your favor in terms of not getting hit. So that has elevated the situation to literally a board-level concern, you know, no... Board typically ever wants to talk about or much less think about backup and recovery, but if that is your last line of defense to keep your business operational, now it's no longer a luxury item.
1: Well, based on the information that you all have gathered here, what is your practical advice to folks? What's the what are the words of wisdom here?
2: Yeah, the number one thing I always like to say is you know download the report and read it, you owe it to yourself to get educated. Part of that education, it might be a confirmation of what you maybe already thought as a practitioner, but now you can have a a different kind of a conversation with your management team or even your board. And then from there, get prepared. You know, sometimes you really can't do everything. We all live in a world of scarcity. But I like to say that you may not be able to do everything, but you can do something You know, you can start to patch the systems that have have gone unpatched for quite some time and represent latent threats with latent vulnerabilities. You can start to plan for a hybrid cloud, multi-cloud world that you're probably already in, even if you're not kind of realizing that yet. And then in terms of, you know, cyber, you know, everything you can do around employee training, particularly around Phishing anything you can do about patch management.
1: And of course, make sure you you have backups and test those backups. That's Dave Russell from Veeam discussing their 2023 Data Protection Trends Report. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Matt O'Neill. He is Deputy Special Agent in Charge for Cyber with the United States Secret Service. Matt, welcome back. Thank you. I want to touch today on some of the work you and your colleagues are doing when it comes to business email compromise and romance scams. Uh, Can we start off with just some definitions here? How do you all describe these particular types of capers? So uh, business email
0: compromises or BECs and romance scams are very much interrelated. So in a business email compromise, typically there are several sort of areas where fraudsters could prey upon uh, victim organizations or individuals. The first would be a CEO impersonation scam Mm. where they will contact somebody in the organization claiming to be the CEO and ask them to move money. Uh, Typically the sort of uh, tactics that they'll use is they'll try to put pressure on The individual who can send the money to say, hey, this has to happen immediately. Don't tell anybody because uh, it could ruin whatever deal that is being done. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, I'm going to be out of pocket for the next 12 to 24 hours. And I expect it to be done
1: by the time I get back. Are these the ones I hear? I need you to go get me some gift cards. Is, Is that often part of this as well?
0: No, that not uh, typically in a business email compromise, but that is a whole other sort of adjacent scam. Okay, that, 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 that does it's hard that to does keep happen. track, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of them, uh, and then also uh, invoice related scams, where mm. uh, typically just like the majority of all of uh, cyber incidents that we see, it starts with phishing attacks and gaining access into emails and then looking for invoices that a victim organization would receive or send, and then trying to either change the routing coordinates of where the invoice was going to get paid, mm-hmm. and then a lot of times what'll happen is it'll be several days or a week later where the victim organization will reach out to whoever they're doing business with and ask them, where's my money? Right. Uh, <laughs> right, right. And they'll say, well, we sent it to that new uh, routing at you know that new financial institution to which then they'll contact uh, the Secret Service or the FBI, but largely it's too late. Another one that's also uh, something that we spend a lot of time on is uh, real estate uh, BECs. Hmm. And that's simply, think about you're getting ready to close on a house and you have to send in your final payment. Well, what fraudsters will do is they will direct that final payment to them. And you're thinking, oh, well, this is just a change in whoever I'm, you know, the, the closing attorney or the title company. And then you'll show up to closing and they'll say, well, I'm sorry, Mr. O'Neill, we can't close today because we never received your money. And the victim will say, well, I sent it to the wiring account address that you suggested to which then that's just awful situations we've had. Mm. We have a team in our uh, the Secret Services Global Investigative Operations Center that's been focused on recovering assets in business email compromised scams since 2019, and they have recovered $283 million since 2019 for victims. And wow. there's only four uh, employees who are extremely hardworking uh, and <laughs> and uh, leverage contacts throughout the global financial services sort of uh, web around the world to try to recover the funds because the most important thing to understand in BEC cases is time is of the essence. So if you don't report it within 48 hours, the odds are the money will be gone. Uh, Our success rate in recovering funds outside of even the asset forfeiture process, but communicating with uh, the receiving bank and the sending bank and getting them to work together to get the money back to the victim, uh, within 24 hours, it's approximately 56%. Hmm. But typically what happens happen in some organizations is once they find out that the money was sent to someone else other than the intended recipient, there comes, uh, we like to call it the Super Bowl of finger pointing. And they'll <laughs> spend several days figuring out who's who is responsible. Right. But by the time that that happens, <laughs> the money is long gone. Wow. And so we... Highly encourage, again, if you're an organization, communicate early and often with your local Secret Service office through our Cyber Fraud Task Force network to make sure that when, if something like this happens, that you have a contact that you can get it to either to them and they can get it to our Global Investigative Operations Center or through FinCEN to try to at least stop the uh, money before it ultimately is withdrawn at the final destination.
1: And what about the the romance scam component of this? How does that play into this?
0: So one of the choke points in financial fraud is money mules. And so typically what we'll see is romance scams, unfortunately, are sort of gateway crimes. And Mm. when I say that, I mean a victim in a romance scam, and those typically happen through uh, websites, dating apps. Traditionally, not the location-based sort of dating apps, uh, but more sort of the legacy online apps where you can kind of hide where you're located and things like that. Mm. And so there's a lot of impersonation that goes on and also long-term cultivating relationships. Sometimes it's four, five, six months. Mm. And so through a romance scam, what'll typically happen is uh, someone, uh, the victim will be notified by the person they think that they've been dating— to say, well, I have this great investment. You should invest in me. We've been, you know, talking forever and, right. you know. You can trust me. Yeah, yes, you can trust me. I'm in on something. We're going to make a lot of money. Or hmm. they could say, I've been injured and I need money to get back to either visit you or something along those lines or a family member. Uh, a lot of times what we'll see is the first, the investment, and then the second will be th- then the injury. And then uh, what we'll see is a transition to the, uh, the victim in this case becoming a witting or unwitting money mule for the bad actors. Then it'll transition to those business email compromise cases that I was talking about where if I'm trying to get an organization to send money to me, I'll usually use one of those money mules, their accounts. So it'll be trying to uh, convince them to open up an account and, hey, we're, you're going to make some money. Uh, you, I I have this overseas business, and I need somebody in the United States to be my accounts receivable. Just open up an account. Provide me with the information. Uh, $100,000 is going to get wired in. You get to keep 5%, and then only thing you have to do is send it to someone else. And then the victim will uh, open the account, and then what will typically happen is after the money has been moved, then law enforcement will go back to that victim and say— you laundered $100,000 in victim proceeds. Where did it go? How did it happen? Those mm-hmm. kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And typically, they, they, now they're doubly victimized because they've, in, they've quote-unquote, invested with the bad actor. And now they're also being victimized because they've become an unwitting money mule. Money mules are sort of the, the, um, one of the centers of gravity that enable uh, cybercrime to flourish.
1: You you alluded to how you know time is of the essence here, and that um, it strikes me that one of the I don't know the superpowers of the Secret Service is is being able to unpack these complex financial things. I mean, the, the agency has a long history of that. Uh, is that the message for our listeners that that really time is of the essence here? That uh, it may be counterintuitive to you know you may think well let's wait, but no, every minute counts.
0: Yes. For a victim or any organization that it inv- uh, engages in uh, sending wires and that sort of thing, the most important thing is to know, A, that this fraud is, is rampant and it is uh, continuing to grow year over year. So you can anticipate at least attempts to be made uh, to your organization. Mm. The good cyber hy- hygiene uh, is always sort of clearly recommended. Yeah. But ultimately, Yes, time is of the essence, and typically after 72 hours, the odds of you getting your money back are very slim. So developing the relationships before the bad day happens with your local Secret Service office, your local FBI office, again, it doesn't matter to us. Uh, As it's often said, cyber is the ultimate team sport. It's our job uh, to work together. It's not your job to figure out, oh, do I call the FBI on this
1: or the Secret Service on this? (laughs) (laughs) Just call somebody and we'll work it out on our end. All right. Fair enough. Matt O'Neill is Deputy Special Agent in Charge for Cyber with the U.S. Secret Service. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber and that's the Cyberwire. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast where I contribute to a regular segment. I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by John Petrick. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. to share your feedback now. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using A.I. in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight A.I. with A.I.,